Hey, we are going to get to James, uh, but first let's do a quick review. Remember I talked about self-talk. Psychologists would say that inner dialogue you have really determines your happiness, your success. Uh, Million-dollar industry, sports psychologists to get people's self-talk to where it needs to be. Psalm 103, King David said, this is good self-talk. And in Psalm 103, remember the list was really important. David said, when I want to remember your benefits, here's how I remember them. First, all your iniquities have been dealt with, past, present, future. Uh, You'll be redeemed from the pit. When you die, you will be resurrected with God. Uh, He has crowned you with loving kindness and compassion. And he's filled your life with good things. For David, it's really important you get the list straight. It starts with all your iniquities being forgiven. It ends with good things. As Americans, we flip the list. We say, no, God is good because uh, our career is going well. Our kids are healthy. The marriage is thriving. The church is booming. That's how we judge God. And David says, no, 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 you got to keep the list like it was in Psalm 103. Then we took a look at Asaph in Psalm 73. That was an example of self-talk going amok. Self-talk heading in the wrong direction. As Asaph looked around, he saw wicked were thriving, and it really, really bothered him. Uh, Remember, he went into the sanctuary, that holy, sacred place, and it was there that his self-talk was uh, figured out. As he thought about the sacrifices of God and a holy place, it helped him to remember that the wicked will be judged eventually, but that God is good because of the sacrifices he accepts from us, prefiguring Christ's ultimate sacrifice. So a bunch of us said, when we walk into this place, this sacred place, building, let's do something different. So maybe we won't walk in with a hot drink. Maybe we will dress up a little bit differently. Maybe we'll be on time. We won't be late. Um, I decided to start bringing my Bible. I kind of got into this habit since it's on the screen, which is great. I think that's very useful. I just stopped bringing my Bible. So my commitment is I'm going to bring my Bible and just kind of read from it. And I'm, I'm not going to worry so much about all the hair products in the morning. That's just kind of my <laughs> commitment. But again, it's whatever you want to do that just kind of reminds you that this isn't a safe place. This was never meant to just be like an entertainment time where you passively sit back and you just watch whoever is up here. No, we want to invite the God to be a part of this. So now we're going to get to the book of James. James is a very interesting book. James is the oldest New Testament book there is. Another way to say that is it's the earliest uh, attempt to take the teachings of Jesus and say of everything he taught during his public ministry, like what should we live out? The book of James doesn't have a ton of theology in it. It has a lot of here's what we should do as Christians. James was uh, a brother of Jesus. He was uh, not supportive of Jesus. Some even argue he was antagonistic towards Jesus. But then when you read James, you find out he's the bishop of Jerusalem. He's the head of the church in Jerusalem, and now he's writing a letter to the 12 dispersed tribes. Boy, that changed the New Testament church. They saw radical conversions. They saw Saul become Paul, leader of the church. James, brother of Jesus, goes from being maybe hostile to now being the bishop of Jerusalem. I hope our congregation grows, not because of great marketing or great worship or great preaching, but because this is where converts are coming. I hope this is a place where we're sharing our faith on a day-to-day basis and we're bringing people into our congregation via evangelism is incredibly important. So James writes this book 
And how he starts it is really interesting. It tells you a lot about uh, James's frame of mind. So we're going to read um, from the Bible, and we're going to do something different from here on out till I'm done in December. The Bible is God's main way of communicating with us. He communicates with us through a lot of different ways. But he was committed to use human language and take human authors and write letters, uh, write books, write gospels. And so when that was happening, the Holy Spirit was thinking of you. He wasn't just thinking of the New Testament church or the Old Testament believers. He had you in mind. So church is a time where we prepare ourselves to be invaded by the Holy Spirit, like King David. Search my heart. So walking through these doors, it ought to be a slightly dangerous place. This is where we come to hear from God and we give God permission to bring up anything he needs to bring up in our crazy, busy, hectic days. This is where we come at one way that God has the the great environment to speak to us. So I'm going to read the word of God. Please, everybody stand. If you can't stand, just assume a position of reception. And let's just take... A few seconds to prepare your heart, to say, God, I want to hear from you today, and your word has been inspired. Here's the book of James, chapter 1. James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You may be seated. So how does James begin? <clears throat> he begins this way. Oh, let me, here's one way to think of the book of James. If you go to grad school in communication theory, you're going to read this book. Yes, it's a little bit as boring as it looks. Um, that's George Herbert Mead. He wrote a book called Mind, Self, and Society. Uh, it is the pivotal text that you read in grad school. Interesting note about this book, Mead didn't write it. Mead wrote very little in his lifetime. When Mead died, his students got together and were so impacted by his teachings that they took their class notes, got together, and wrote Mind, Self, and Society, and it's attributed to George Herbert Mead, but it's really put together by his students. I often say to my Biola students, I'm just looking forward to the, you know, the book that they're going to do, I'm th- titles, I don't know, In the Shadow of the Almighty? I don't know, I'm thinking out loud. So the book of James is James attempting to take 
uh, the sayings of Jesus and kind of categorizing them. One person compared the book of James to the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Again, James is hard to outline. Don't look too closely for an outline. James is just saying, these are the things that the Spirit is leading me that we really need to be takeaways when it comes to living the Christian life. So I find it fascinating where James starts. He starts with difficulties. Boy, we forget that today as modern Christians. Hey, the early sales pitch of the New Testament churches, life is going to be really hard. And if you accept Jesus as your Savior, it's going to get harder. Wow, you had me at hello. How would that be for like a marketing tool today? No, but he says life is going to be very difficult. Why? Because he had listened to Jesus. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 16. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. But how has Jesus overcome the world? In his overtaking the world, does that mean that there's no ISIS? Does that mean that there's no poverty? Does that mean that there's no sex trafficking? No, it means Jesus has overcome the world in such a way that he gives you peace. So it doesn't mean that he gets rid of every difficulty, every evil, every problem. He will do that, Revelation 21. But right now, he's not done that, yet he still wants you to have peace in the midst of great tribulation. This really stayed with the New Testament writers. Paul says this, Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardship, and distresses. In the book of Acts, the disciples are now addressing a crowd. By the way, a bunch of them had just gotten beat up for their faith. And yet, this is what they say to the crowd. We must endure many hardships to enter into the kingdom of God. So men and women, um, I remember reading an adage once that said, life wouldn't be so difficult if we didn't expect it to be so easy. So men and women, I think as American Christians, we really expect life to be easy. We expect that we have money and we have surplus and that there's just things we can do to take away the problems of this life. And God is saying, no, if you are a Christian and you're committed to my world, then it is in opposition to Satan's world, to the prince of the power of the air, right? So if we live Christian lives, you are inviting pushback. And men and women, that pushback is coming. Um, You may know Senate Bill 1146 was pulled back by Senator Laura. It would have radically changed how Christian universities, how Christian we could be. And guess what? He's coming back next year. He's already said he's coming back. He said, I went to school and I got schooled, but I'm coming back. So there might be a time where as Biola faculty, we have to ask the question, what will we do if Biola is closed? What do we do if Christian universities, we don't have the religious freedom to live out what we want to live out? I think those times are coming. The fight is being fought at the university level. It will eventually trickle down to the church level. And do you have religious freedom? And how much religious freedom do we have in the United States to hold to certain social positions that we feel are biblical? And there's things that we just have to speak out against. I think hard times are coming. I think they're coming economically. I think they're coming spiritually. All right, here's a quote that totally messed up my life. Uh, It did, so I wanted to pass it off to you so we could be miserable together. Oz Guinness is a Christian thinker. He's brilliant. He's an apologist. He said this, The accuracy of our picture of God is not shown in the orthodoxy of our creeds, but in the truths which we assume and count on in those moments when the heat is on. The chips are down, and reality seems to be breathing down our necks. 
what we presuppose then is the real picture we have of God, and this may be very different from what we profess to believe in God. What do trials do? Two things. They show you what your list is. They show you how you believe God is good, and second, it it surfaces what you actually believe about God. Now, God knows what you actually believe about him. If I were to say to you, do you believe God's good? You'd all would say, all the time, right? Well, that's your orthodoxy. That's your creed. But you might not always believe that when hard times hit. The best thing God can do is surface what you really believe about him. Surface what your list really looks like as an American Christian. He wants you to be free. And the freedom comes in the fact that God loves you because he crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Not because he gives you good things. And as American Christians, we're really prone to this. And by the way, James is speaking to the 12 tribes that have been dispersed. These are Christians who have left the possessions. They are living in foreign lands. Uh, At the stoning of Stephen, great persecution hit the church. James would eventually be stoned himself to death. So obviously James isn't saying, I know God is good because I've not been martyred. He would be martyred. So God wants to use trials to surface what you really think about him and what your list is really like. Another simplification comes from A.W. Tozer. Only after an ordeal of painful self-probing, remember this is your self-talk, are we likely to discover what we actually believe about God. So, two steps when you hit trials. Step number one, view the trials as God views them. Uh, So James says this, consider it all joy. Underline the word joy. Boy, that's kind of hard to think about. So I'm supposed to be joyful, happy when hard times hit? My brethren, when you encounter various trials, not just one trial, but various trials, James is saying, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So here are some questions. One, how should I view a trial? Are all trials from God? Bottom line, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, My self-talk is this, based on my study of the scriptures. Yes, some trials that have happened in your life, God orchestrated. Why? Because he wanted to surface certain things. I don't think that's how God generally does it. I think God says, my people live in a fallen world. In a fallen world, there's cancer, there's migraines, there's disease, there's poverty, there's recession, there's corruption, and I do not protect my church from it. I don't protect you because I want people to see this is how Christians respond to hardship as an evangelistic tool. So do I think God can institute a specific trial in your life? Yes, we have evidences of that in the New Testament. I think God's modus operandi, his daily activity, is that he allows his children to experience uh, hardship, but he always redeems it. He uses it for purposes. I could be wrong, but I, uh, that's at least my self-talk based on my study of the scriptures. What does James mean by joy? Boy, if ever a word had to be unpacked, it's James saying, I want you to be joyful when you hit really hard times. What? Now, do not equate joy with happiness. Happiness in the Webster Dictionary means a continually pleasurable feeling. James is not saying that. So let's say you lose your job. It would be sick of James to say, hey, I want you to be happy about losing your job. I don't think James is saying that. He says, I want you to be joyful. The word joyful carries with it this connotation that I am 
yielding to God's perspective. I'm asking God to be part of this. I'm not just happy in an American sense, but I'm saying I'm joyful because I know good is going to come out of this. That's what James means when he says joy. So listen to this uh, interesting quote from St. John of the Cross. The purpose of the darkness is not to punish or afflict you. Do not think of a trial as God's punishment. Don't think when you hit really hard times, um, uh, the job goes south, the marriage is experiencing rocky times, the kids aren't doing what you want them to do, they're not following the faith, uh, the church isn't growing like we'd like, financially we're hitting hard, whatever. Don't think that that's God stepping in and he's always chastising you. That will really warp your view of God and warp your view of trials. No, no, no. It's not meant to afflict us, St. John of the Cross says. Here's Brian Simmons. Happiness depends on happenings, but joy depends on Christ. How many of you have ever read a book by Brian Simmons? Yeah, he hasn't written anything. He's a friend of mine. Okay, so Brian Simmons. (laughs) Usually I've wanted to... Oh, love him. He's awesome. So Brian Simmons is a friend of ours, and he uh, is dealing with brain cancer. He has tumors on the brain. He can't work anymore. It's, It's impossible for him to work. Uh, He has young kids and wonders if he's going to see his kids get married, if he's going to see his kids have kids. So when Brian sends you a Christmas card, you tend to read it. And in the Christmas card, that's what he said. Happiness depends on happenings. Right? So, hey, the job's going well. I feel good today. My team won yesterday, which, by the way, they did the University of Michigan. Okay, um, Lions, problem of evil. All right, so... So is it really like that? When good things happen, I feel good. When bad things happen, I feel bad. Brian Simmons says, that's not joy. No, joy is rooted in Christ. Your happiness has to be rooted in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. All right, step number two. Why would God allow a trial? Why would he allow difficulties? Because he wants to have a dialogue with you. This is very important what James is trying to communicate. But if any of you lacks wisdom, perhaps the most misinterpreted verse of the New Testament, yes, you should ask God for wisdom, but that's not what James is talking about. He's talking about a very specific kind of wisdom. When you are in the trial, when you're having a difficulty, that's when you need to ask for wisdom about the trial. God, what is it you want me to think about as I'm experiencing these difficulties? But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously without reproach. God is eager to have this conversation and he promises you I will meet you here and I will generously communicate with with you. So if some of you feel like I don't hear from God on a regular basis maybe it's because we're not yielding to the difficulties. We're not using the difficulties as a moment that we can have this great conversation with God because there's so much he wants to communicate with us and he says ask me about the trial I generously will give you input and without any reproach, which means there's no stupid question when it comes to a trial. I want to have this dialogue. St. John of the Cross again. Our trials are a divine appointment. A privileged opportunity to draw close to the divine center. That's what a trial is meant to do. 
So I get migraines. Um, I've been having them for years, started in grad school. Uh, do I pray that God would cure my migraines? Absolutely, but so far that's just not the case. By the way, I have, you guys are so generous. You're giving me all of these great suggestions. Uh, I even have one um, dentist who is making the contraption for me that might help me with migraines. So listen, I'm doing everything I can for these migraines, but as of yet, I still get, I still get these migraines. So when I get a migraine, what's my self-talk with the migraine? One, God's punishing me. Okay, no, St. John of the Cross says that is not the case. Second, maybe God wants to talk to me. See, my life is crazy like your life. I'm moving from thing to thing. I'm always doing stuff, right? We're, we're always connected. We always have like our Blackberry or whatever, our, our smartphones. We're always listening to music. We're always connected. And God's like, oh, I have a thought for you. Oh, something. Hey, oh, I want to comment on that and we, we, we just never do it see solitude is the foundational biblical discipline in the new testament and the old testament solitude time alone with god god is a still small voice and it's an acquired taste and god does not force himself upon you so when these difficulties happen and i get a migraine when i get a migraine i go into a room i can't lay down that bugs me i can't sleep That bothers my migraine. I can't watch anything. So I literally sit in a dark room with the ceiling fan going. And I just sit there. And God's like. (laughs) Love it. Okay. Mr. Interim Teaching Pastor. Psalm 103. Uh, What's your list like? Do you believe I'm good because I'll cure you of migraines? Do you believe I'm good because the book proposal you just sent in will be accepted? Do you believe I'm good? Because, right? Down the line. And I'm just sitting there in a dark room like, oh, Lord, just get rid of the migraine. No, no, no. I just, I want to talk. Okay, well, okay. Right? Oh, so I'm driving in the car. This is just three days ago. We get a text. We're on an alert system by Ola University. Here's the text I get at a red light. Man with gun in Biola Library. What? What? So I'm immediately trying to call my two kids who are at Biola. If I was an undergrad, that would have been the safest thing in the world, was library. I would have been totally fine. But I have two kids who actually study, okay? So I'm thinking, oh my gosh. By the way, one of them was at the library. One of them was at the library. And he gets the text. People are streaming out of the library. He's on the third floor. He's actually trying to organize people to get out. But the whole time, I'm thinking, see, that surfaced my self-talk in a heartbeat. God, you do not touch my kids. You do not touch my kids. My kids don't die in a, a campus shooting. They don't. That's off limits. And God is like, okay, okay, I love your kids more than you do. That can't be off limits. Tim, my love is attached to the health of your kids. And I'm like, well, yes. (laughs) And don't you just want to say to the Holy Spirit at that moment, really, I'm like the biggest thing happening today? Is there nothing else you should be working on today? Like, how's the second coming coming? You know what I mean? It's like, (laughs) wow, what is... So the Holy Spirit is saying, Tim, go back to the list. Go back to the list. Are your iniquities forgiven? Yes. 
Are you going to be raised from the dead? Yes. If your kids died in that shooting, would they be raised from the dead? Yes. It ought to mean a lot to you. That ought to mean a lot. Right? But it doesn't. There's a disconnect right now. Because God wants us to be free from the happenings. Don't uh, judge my love on whether your brain tumor gets dealt with. Now, why do I believe that's what James is saying? Because of this really interesting thing he says to the poor. Because uh, you can imagine all these displaced Christians are poor. They've lost their income. So he says this, verse 9. But the brother of humble circumstances, he's talking about the poor, is to glory in their high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away. So poor, you actually have an exalted position. Now, if you're one of the poor, you're sitting there going, and exactly what is my exalted position? How how am I exalted? It's not because I have money. It's not because I have status. And it's not because I have power. I don't have any of those things. And God is saying, but your position is exalted. Why? Because you never get tempted to flip the list. You never get tempted to say, oh, because I have money, status, and power, God loves me. Well, the poor don't have that. So they sit and they say, you know what? I have an exalted position because it's very easy to me believe that God loves me because of his grace, mercy, compassion, and tenderness. I don't get confused with marital possessions, I mean material possessions, because I don't have any. Men and women, I think the American church is in great danger. I think us in Southern California, we're in great danger. God's love is not attached to anything external. Yes, he heals people. Yes, he does protect kids in certain situations. But my goodness, you can't pit Christian parent against Christian parent. What, I prayed for my kids, they were protected? Well, I prayed for mine, and they weren't, and they died. Right? God is saying, you can't look at my love that way. The greatest symbol of my love is rooted in something else. And the something else is what trials are supposed to surface in us. Do I pray that I get healed of migraines? Absolutely. Uh, but in the meantime, God's redeeming the migraines by having some interesting conversations. So let's pause right now. Remember, this is an active place, not a passive place. So as you've been listening to the word of God or listening to something that I've said, what has the Spirit been saying to you? So let's take a few seconds and just ask the Spirit to say of everything I just heard, it could be part of the worship, it could be what you just heard. What are my thoughts that the Holy Spirit is bringing to mind? Be attuned to those, even write them down as they come. Let's take some seconds and think about that.
Here are some of the thoughts I've thought about as I meditated on this passage. Is God for me? And why do I believe he is? Second, how does he feel about me right now in the midst of a trial? And then last, how's my list doing? Is it inverted or is it as um, King David would want it to be? All right, let's talk about why we know God loves us, why we know that God's for us, even in the midst of difficulties, even in the midst of trials. There is a teaching principle that's used by Jesus and used by Paul. It's called the principle of the greater to the lesser. In essence, it means if, if you have been given the greater, it assumes the lesser. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, you see this all over the place. Uh, Jesus says, listen, if God gave you life, the greater, then of course he'll give you food and water, the lesser. If God gave you a body, the greater, of course he'll give you clothes, which is the lesser. So this principle of greater to lesser is really important when it comes to why does Jesus love us? Why does God love us? Um, So I put this image up on the screen. Uh, As men, we have to do a really bizarre thing, ladies. Now I get that life is hard for women, like childbirth. Oh my word, ladies. If it were up to the men to keep civilization going via childbirth, I think we'd pretty much say, hey, we had a good run. You know what I mean? Oh, my respect for my wife. Coaching a woman in childbirth is like coaching an avalanche. Go. You know? But listen, ladies, there's one thing we do. There's one thing we do that's amazing. We ask a woman to marry us the rest of your life with me. Wow, that's crazy. And we're like sheep being led to slaughter. I remember I was going to ask Noreen to... uh, to marry me, so I go to the, a diamond factory. I know nothing about diamonds. I walk in to a diamond factory. A man sits down with me. He shows me two diamonds. Uh, I have to look through a microscope. One diamond has these black specks. He says, oh, those are impurities in the diamond. That's not good. Look at this diamond. I look at the next diamond. Fewer specks. He goes, less impurities. Then it was just a pause. And I said to him, can you see this with the naked eye? And he said, oh, no. And I said, I'm going to go with the cheaper one. I'm going to bank that Noreen will not pull out a little microscope and start to count specs, right? So I asked the woman to marry me. She says yes. But imagine how bizarre it would be of Noreen if she were to say, if she's looking at the ring, which costs a lot of money, by the way. I was a poor Campus Crusade for Christ staff person. And Noreen said, honey, I love the ring, but I want to ask you for something, but I feel really weird to ask this. I'm like, what? I love the ring, but could I keep the box, the box it came in? Noreen, I just gave you a ring, thousands of dollars. The box is like, what, $4.99? You can keep the box. If I gave you the ring, you can keep the box it came in. That's what the principle of the greater to lesser is. Paul gives us the best expression of it. He says this. He who did not spare his own son, the greater of the greatest. How will he not with him give us all things? If he gave you Jesus, he is willing to give you all things. So Tim Milhoff, if I gave you Jesus, I'm willing to cure your migraines. If I gave you Jesus, I will protect your kids even as I did not protect my son. But you cannot hold me to that. If, if, God forbid, something happened to one of my kids. Tim, it wasn't because I didn't love you. God forbid your business goes under. God says, but I gave you Jesus. 
I would have done everything, but I have other purposes for not doing it. Trust me. Do you trust me? Do you trust me because the bank account is good? Do you trust me because you're dating somebody? Do you trust me because you have this certain image, body image that culture tells? Right? Why do you trust me? And he is ruthless to say it's got to be Calvary. Right? Now, I hope he cures my migraines. But his love cannot be attached to that. So how does God feel about me? James ends with great news in this section. He says this. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. By the way, God sees you persevering. He sees you going through the hard times. He watches you 24-7. Jesus said, there's not a bird that falls from the sky that I'm not aware of. There's not a hair on your head that I don't know of. God watches you persevere, and it is a powerful thing. I've said to my kids regularly, I said, if I could give you one character quality, I would give you perseverance. And I watch my kids persevere. Right now I have a son who is, has these great ideas of wanting to go off and uh, be a physical therapist. But right now he's in the hard times. Right? He's having to take classes at a community college for grad school. He's working an internship. And guess what? Nobody's looking at him going 24-7. Oh, that's awesome. He's persevering through it to get to his dream. And that is awesome to watch him persevere. And as his father, I'm aware of it. I try to encourage him. I write him notes. Guess what? God knows you're persevering through this trial. He watches it. He knows that marriage is difficult. He knows those kids broke your heart. Right? He knows it and he sees it. Remember what David said? He crowns you with compassion. Just as a father looks at his children with compassion, David said, God looks at you with compassion. So he knows that you have, you're persevering. Then he says this, because once you've been reproved, you will receive the crown of life. Remember what David said, you've been redeemed from the pit. That's the most important thing. Remember St. Athanasius, the most important thing about Christians is we don't fear death. Death is not the end. It's the beginning of an eternity-filled love relationship with God. But then he says this, that the crown of life has been promised to those who blank. Now, what you put in that blank will determine your self-talk. Is the crown of life given to those who um, conquer their habit of pornography? Uh, is given to those who um, are in a great productive marriage their entire life. It's given to those who produce kids. You know, those amazing kids, you hear these stories. Yeah, my child started a nonprofit and they're digging clean water wells, right? And it's like, uh, okay. My child had two matching shoes today. It's like, whoa, right? Is it given to you because of your grade point? Is it given to you because you um, 24-7 live the perfect Christian life? Is it given to people who never stumble in the Christian life? Is the criteria that high? If it's that high, then guess what? You're going to be two steps forward, three steps back with God your entire life. James says, I know you're in trials right now. I know this is hard. I want you to persevere. And the crown of life is given to people who do this. And here's what goes into the blank. I love this. Who love him. So today, on Sabbath, right, we need to have a day of Sabbath. I'm doing this assignment with my students. It's been really fun. All semester, they've been having a Sabbath day. It's a class on gender. So think of all the crazy gender messages you get, ladies, and men get, right, that you never measure up, never measure up. Guess what? On Sabbath day, we don't do any of that. Sabbath day, we sit and we say, God is completely pleased with who I am. 
And they're memorizing Psalm 139, that God wove you together like a, a, ma- a master basket weaver. So on our Sabbath day, we just sit and we say, you know what? I'm not going to judge myself today. I could do better. Of course I could do better. But today I'm just going to be content in the fact that God is contented and loved me. So I love that James says that. Do you love him? Here's what we do as modern Christians. Yes, I love him, but I I didn't do a great job as being a Christian husband. Okay, get rid of that. Yeah, but I looked at pornography. Okay, okay. By the way, he's going to deal with that. He's going to deal with all of that. But today, we say, but I do love him. I'm not perfect. And, I have, and the Holy Spirit is saying, no, 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 no. Do you love him? Yes? Nope. No buts. A but is a verbal eraser. Right? No, today we say, so here's my favorite quote. You've got to write this down. St. Anne of the Cross said this. The mere fact you want to please God pleases God. The mere fact that you want to please him. So today, if you can say at bare minimum, I love, I love God. I just, I'm a crappy Christian sometimes. Okay, okay. But do you love him? Yes, okay. See, we do need to talk about spiritual discipline. We do need to talk about upping our game if we've been Christians for a long time, right? Paul deals with that. Hey, you should be having meat right now and you're still having this milk. Okay, we should talk about that. But the basis has got to be that we are secure in God's love because we'll never grow unless we're secure. So the purpose of a trial from James's perspective is I want to surface what you believe about God's love. I want to know why you believe he loves you. And I want to know if you really do think God takes great delight in who you are. Men and women from that kind of foundation, we're really going to see growth as we pursue who Christ is being secured in his love. It's the principle of the greater to the lesser. So men and women, let's pray right now. So please join me, stand. Or assume a posture of communication with God. Do you not find it remarkable that the God of the universe is attentive right now? Do you not? What's your self-talk like in this moment? Hey, I get it. Some of you are thinking, come on, wrap this thing up because I want to get to Brugger's before the line gets really long. Right? I get that. But this is all we're doing is saying this moment right now, we're going to take seriously what we believe. So the king of the universe is listening to you right now. And he's not an abstract king. He's your heavenly father. That's powerful. Right? If President Corey walked into my office, I would pop up from behind my desk. By the way, he's a great guy. He never puts on airs. And I know him enough that we joke about each other's sports teams. But if that man walked in my room, I'd pop up because that's the president of the university. Right? So we're standing in front of the king of the universe and he is attentive to us. What a remarkable moment. It's a holy moment. So let's pray. Father, we confess that sometimes we judge you based on the car we drive, the way we look in the mirror, our bank accounts, whether our kids are healthy, whether we're healthy. 
And Father, you have said in other places, pray, ask. So I do pray for the people in the congregation right now that are suffering from pain, fear, headaches, disillusionment. I do pray for them. Father, that they would feel your presence, that these hard times would surface what we really believe about you. And Father, you say in other places, pray for your daily bread, pray for healing, and we do. But we do not judge your love based on those components. Father, let us never take it for granted praying in Jesus' name. We are mindful of what had to happen to him. When your son said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of us. So, Father, I pray for this day that we'd be secure in your love. We would not attach it to anything. Our iniquities have been forgiven. The curse has been removed. We will be resurrected from this life. And you have crowned us with compassion, loving kindness, and you do give us good things. Today, we say thank you. And we pray in Jesus' name confidently. Amen. Amen.